Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. If you're a fan of the show, write us a review and tell your friends about us. And if you donate at thebittersweetlife.net, you'll not only help keep the show going, you'll get a handwritten thank you note in the mail. And we will never forget you. Also, if you want to sponsor the show, contact us through thebittersweetlife.net. And if you're new, welcome. I'm Katie Sewell. This show begins in Rome, right after I quit my job as a senior producer for public radio and moved there. This was totally out of my character. My co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer, author of Midnight in the Piazza, and she's my childhood friend. And she also moved to Rome, but over a decade ago. She flew there with no real plan and managed to stay. Don't be afraid to start way back at the beginning. I promise you'll be entertained. And don't be afraid to start thinking about how you might want your life to be different. We're all on this journey together. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but joining me is Hallie Rubenhold. She's a social historian who is an expert at revealing the stories of previously unknown women and episodes in history. She's the author of The Covent Garden Ladies, which was also the inspiration for the Hulu television series Harlots. And she wrote a book called The Lady in Red, which was made into a BBC drama called The Scandalous Lady W. And if that's not enough, she's also the author of two historical novels, Mistress of My Fate and The French Lesson. She regularly appears in documentaries and works as a historical consultant to period dramas. And today she's joining us from London to talk about her latest book, the Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. Thanks so much for jumping on with me. Oh, it's a pleasure. This is a really deeply researched book that's full of fascinating details that I didn't know about. And obviously, our time is limited, so we're just going to touch on a few of them. I thought we should at least first set the stage. What period of history are you looking at during this book? Well, this period of history is really what certainly in the in the UK and I think in the US we would call the Victorian era. And the really interesting thing about this is that people tend to think of Jack the Ripper and everything that happened as just being something that happened in the late Victorian period in 1888 when the women were killed. But if you expand the story and you look at the five women's lives, what you can see is that these women's lives pretty much spanned almost the entire Victorian era. So almost the entire era when Victoria was on the throne. I mean, that was one of the things that I found so interesting because through looking at their lives, we can get a real insight into the Victorian era that we normally don't have. So they are a really interesting lens into that time period. Yes, and when you open the book, you set the stage really nicely by giving what a contrast would have been like for the rich people of the time and the poor people. Is there any way you can give us a snapshot what the very rich were doing and the very poor were like at that time? Yeah, so the introduction of the book, I think I want to make some really important points, which is a lot of what we know about Jack the Ripper and a lot of what we know about the Victorian era is really determined a lot by the media. And when I say the media, I'm including publishing in this as well, because 
our ideas of what the Victorian era was like is very much shaped by what we see on TV and in the movies. And usually what we see are adaptations from novels and things like that. And these are largely, if not depictions of middle class and upper class life, then they are written by middle and upper class authors. You know, even Charles Dickens, although he was writing about poverty and disease and all of these terrible things, was still writing about it from a very safe, wealthy, male, middle-class perspective. So we tend to think when somebody says Victorian era, we think of a lot of the imagery that I raise in the opening chapter of my book, which is beautiful gowns and balls and picnics and regattas and celebrations and Queen Victoria and all of these wonderful things, you know, exciting things. What we don't think about are the experiences of the women who lived in poverty and actually pretty much the majority of society who lived on the margins. And I really wanted to introduce that as a concept to help ease people's passage into this world, which is not a world that we're hugely familiar with. No. And like you mentioned, when people think about Jack the Ripper, the common stereotype is that he killed prostitutes. Yeah. Which, as you explore the lives of these women, you find is not true. Why is that such an important narrative that comes out of that time, if it's a narrative that's being shaped by the press? Well, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, it's being shaped by the press, and then it's continuously being shaped by the media through the decades, through the centuries even. And these murders occurred 130 years ago. And we as a society, have been bequeathed this kind of package of Victorian values that surrounds these murders. And it absolutely shocked me that we never thought to question any of this stuff that we were handed. And it's a kind of really interesting litmus test because it tests our own moral values today. You know, how believable do we find it that this murderer killed prostitutes, that we don't even question that. And I think that's a really kind of uncomfortable place to go. And it also shows us how relevant history can be. You know, history isn't just something that happened in the past to a load of people who we didn't know, whose lives had no relevance in our own era. History happened and its resonances are still with us. They fed into our cultural beliefs, our cultural practices, our ideology, you know, everything. Again, I think that's a really important thing to be aware of and to explore. Yeah, it's interesting because as I was reading your book, I'm living in San Francisco right now, and I moved here from Seattle. Both places have extremely challenging homeless issues. Mm. And I saw so many echoes of some of the issues that these women that you write about are facing in the way that society treats them. And I still see those echoes in the streets today. Yeah. How we either interact or just disregard these people around us. To put something a little more concrete on the table, why don't we talk about the first woman you write about, Polly? One of the things I really loved about the way that you introduced her was your description of the area that she grew up in when she was a kid. Can you describe the street she was on? Yeah, so Polly grew up, um, Polly Nichols, or her real name was Marianne, and she was called Polly, and she was born Marianne Walker 
And she was born in a part of London, which we know as Holborn, kind of Holborn, Clerkenwell. And this area was, it was just off of Fleet Street, which was the center of printing in London. It was up until fairly recently the case that um, a lot of the newspapers and the printing presses were all based around that area. And where she lived, she lived in, you know, it was particularly downtrodden part of town. And it was also a part of town that Charles Dickens knew very intimately because Dickens had a kind of fluctuation of fortunes throughout his life as well. And he spent some time in in debtor's prison when his father went to prison. And when he came out, he knew that area very well. He knew that area very well because he worked in that area because it was the center of publishing, as I said. So it had this kind of bohemianness about it. But more to the point, it was really just mired in poverty. And the living conditions in which Polly lived in there, Polly and so many other people, you know, she might live in one room, one or maybe two rooms, kind of eight by 10 feet. And you have to remember that in those rooms tended to be quite large families. So, you know, a family of six or seven might live in one room of eight feet by 10 feet or two rooms of about that size which would have made life just absolutely impossible. These buildings were very old. They were very badly ventilated. Their fabric was falling apart. You know, there are all these discussions uh, when the health inspectors go in and they see things like, you know, the, the stair rails are falling away. You know, they're missing steps. The windows are broken. There's a lot of vermin. It's very hard to get fresh water when you live there. So, you know, people are um, are using actually wastewater and getting very, very sick and dying of things like cholera and typhus, not surprisingly, or typhoid even. This was the way working class people lived in a lot of London in the middle of the 19th century and well into the later part of the 19th century also. It's important to remember here, which is quite surprising, that Polly Nichols, or Polly Walker, as she was called then, her father worked in the printing trade. He was skilled. He was a blacksmith and he made parts for um, printing presses. And so, you know, it wasn't like he had a sort of job that didn't give him a consistent income. This was, if you had a consistent income, you know, you still lived in very poor conditions. It had never occurred to me before reading your book that a blacksmith would be involved in making typesetting letters. Yeah. And of course, but it's fascinating. It's so interesting to think of because it's so, you just don't think of the blacksmith intersecting with the literary culture like that. And I found that really interesting. Exactly. Well, you talk a bit in this section, too, about how the Civil War affected the expats in London. Yes. And since this is a show that is listened to by a lot of expats, some of which are in London, I thought people would find it really interesting to see what happens to the expat community at that time. Well, I yeah, that was something I found really interesting also, because um, I was looking a bit at the life of George Peabody, who was an American expat who funded one of the first major programs of social housing in London. I mean, he was a massive philanthropist, kind of on the scale of like the gay family in the 19th century. And he had come to London from Massachusetts and he had felt as if London had adopted him. And so he wanted to give something back to the people. But he, this project that he 
this social housing project that he wanted to start hit a couple of bumps in the road due to the American Civil War. And, you know, just when I was looking into it, it was very interesting, the experience of um, being an American abroad at that time, because if you were a southerner, say, for example, from Virginia, if you were a merchant, you were working in, in London and, and you were, a, you know, a northerner from New York or Boston and you were working in London, you kind of broke off your social relations as well at the time. And the United States, the North, wasn't very well looked upon. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was frowned upon by the British who were quite keen to keep getting their cotton from the South at that time. So there was all sorts of friction. And Peabody was really afraid. You know, a number of um, incidents occurred uh, politically that would prevent the British people from receiving his philanthropy, that they would not look fondly on his gift. And so he had to wait until the opportune time to actually make that gift to the city and to its people. And I thought that was really quite interesting. Yeah, very. So you said that he does these housing constructions that are meant to help working class people elevate their living situation, basically put them in a place that's not damp and full of rats. Yeah. The Peabody buildings were absolutely revolutionary. You know, it was all modern conveniences. So the way they were built was that, first of all, every apartment would have had enough rooms to accommodate the family members. And by saying that, I mean, so, for example, the boys and the girls, the boy children, the girl children would be split in their own separate rooms. I mean, that was like utter luxury okay and then the parents could even have their own room as well um and then you would have like a big living room uh living dining room area but not only that i mean you had laundry facilities on the roof there was a whole kind of laundry facility area complete with a with drawing rooms in the basement the basement was entirely turned over into a public bath so all you needed to do was get the key. You know, there was hot water pumped in. You could have a bath like every day if you wanted to have a bath every day, which was amazing. You even had like you shared a toilet and um, and a sink. You actually shared a bathroom with the flat next to you. So you had indoor plumbing, which was amazing. You had the rooms were heated. You had a stove in your kitchen so you could cook on. Each room had uh, had a fire to keep it warm. Can you imagine going from a place where you were sharing a room that was like eight by 10 feet with like five other family members to, I mean, it was like heaven on earth. Yeah, moving into a palace almost. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then that's the great thing for Polly is that she does get married and they qualify to move into one of these places. Exactly. Polly marries William Nichols, and William Nichols is a printer. And also the great thing is the whole Peabody, the concept behind Peabody was they wanted to make sure that these houses were part of the community and anybody who lived in them kind of worked nearby. So William Nichols worked on the other side of the gates of the Peabody flats was his his printer. He worked for a big printers and the, the printing press was there. So he could literally come home for, for lunch and come home for dinner. He would always be home with his family. I mean, it was amazing. It was so revolutionary. And so they moved into this place. They were chosen. And of course, you have to be really respectable. Hardcore drinking was not allowed at all. You had to show that you had been inoculated against things like smallpox. 
You had to show that you were upstanding, decent people and that your husband had a job and he could bring in the money and pay the rent, which was partially subsidized. And it was a really good deal. And there was really nothing like it in London. And they were selected from literally hundreds of families who wanted into this estate. And they were very lucky. Yeah. It's so interesting with all of these stories, because as we mentioned at the beginning of this, people have been told forever that these were just poor prostitutes that were murdered. And when you really trace their life, like you look at Polly, you go, wow, yeah, she was in a poorer class, but she had a relatively stable thing going for a while. Yeah. And then life happens and her circumstances get less stable over time. But it really does go against the narrative to put her in a place like that. How does she end up falling on a harder time than this sort of glory period that she's in? This shows how precarious women's lives were in the 19th century. You know, society was not geared towards women supporting themselves, towards the single woman, towards anything. You know, so like this whole idea that we have today that like, oh, well, you got to like being single. you got to like being by yourself. And that was just anathema in the Victorian era. Men needed women and women needed men. And it was believed that society simply couldn't function. The idea of being on your own and making your own way in life was just, I mean, it was absurd. I mean, men could get away with it more than women could. So, for example, Polly kind of found out that, well, Polly did find out that her husband was basically having an affair with the woman who lived next door. We don't know how exactly this played out, but we know that there was a period of discord and disharmony and Polly went and spent time living with her father and obviously, you know, the family, her father and her brother who were living together at the time with her brother's wife basically said, you know, we can't support you. You've got to go back. You've got your kids. You've, you know, it was a, a woman just didn't walk out. But sometimes a woman did walk out. But the problem is a woman walking out of her family, a poor woman walking out or a lower class woman walking out of her family in the 19th century was like kind of jumping off a cliff without a parachute. Her life was going to be ruined. She obviously thought whatever the circumstances were, they were intolerable and she didn't want to stay there. And so she had to go straight into the workhouse because you had to prove that you had need in order for your husband to agree to what would be a separation. It could never be a divorce because divorce was too expensive at that time. But at least with a separation, he could pay you a maintenance. And so you had to prove you were absolutely destitute. And she went into the workhouse and the workhouse was such a place of deep shame at that time that to go to the workhouse was to actually admit absolute failure in your life. And Polly, you know, there's no evidence that she her, or her family ever spent time in the workhouse at all. And to go from the Peabody, which was such an honor to live there, into the workhouse would have been really shameful and humiliating. And so her husband was able to pay her maintenance so she could survive. Women's work paid very, very poorly. You needed a man to help you to survive. And, you know, as I said, single women weren't tolerated at this time. So it was inevitable that Polly would find somebody else to move in with. 
Now, her husband found out that she had moved in with another man, you know, was moving her life on. This enabled him to cut her maintenance payment. Never mind the hypocrisy that um, he eventually moved out, moved in with the woman next door, and they raised Polly's children. So it was perfectly okay for him to do it. But when she did it, it meant he could cut her maintenance payments. So when Polly and this man she'd moved in with split up, she was left with nothing. She was completely destitute. Katie, breaking away from my own interview here to let you know that we are doing a book giveaway associated with today's episode. If you are interested in winning a copy of this book, go follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. There you will find details on how you can win one of three copies of the five. Back to the show. So let's look at Annie, too, because she's in a different circumstance. She's the second victim. But all of these women really are, like you mentioned, such a victim of the circumstance of what women are able to do at this time. Yeah. <clears throat> They're so held in place. And not only that, but the fact that they have lots and lots of children also. Yes. Yeah. And it's unique, I think, that Polly decided to leave that all behind, left the children behind as well. Now, Annie, Annie is the daughter of a royal guard. What would that lifestyle have been like? Well, it is interesting because she was an army brat, basically. And initially, it's quite hard. It's quite punishing in that they didn't have a very good quality of life. However, there were a lot of extra perks. First of all, her father was part of an incredibly prestigious regiment. He was lucky because he was never sent abroad to fight. So he was part of the second lifeguard and they were part of the household cavalry. So they guarded the queen and the royal family. So Annie spent her childhood growing up between Knightsbridge, which is one of the poshest parts of London even today, and Windsor and Windsor Castle. So she grew up in the shadow of royalty and aristocracy and all of this wealth and privilege. And she would have been used to seeing Queen Victoria in her carriage and Prince Albert trotting around on his horse through Windsor Great Park and all of the aristocracy. And, you know, and her father would have instilled in her this sense of pride. She would have been brought up in a very strict way. She was given a very good education at the, at the uh, what were called the regimental schools. So it was the, the regiment that provided schooling for all of the children. And because her father was in a very prestigious regimen, when he came to retire, the tradition was that men would become gentlemen's valets. So if you can think of Mr. Bates in Downton Abbey, what a prestigious position that was, dressing the earl. He was basically the servant to very wealthy titled men. And so her father served two men and he went and lived in these households. You know, he traveled around Ireland. He went to castles. He went to Paris when his one of his employers got married. He saw this kind of aristocratic life. Unfortunately, he suffered from depression and he ended up killing himself. And that would have been a massive shock to the family. But it also would have meant that usually men who died in the service of wealthy families, their families would have been given some sort of pension. And that is 
what explains Annie's mother, Ruth, being able to take on this house in Knightsbridge, which became the family house that they lived in then permanently. And they had lived in originally and when they were moving around, as the regimental families did. And they went back to this house and she was able to take the lease on that house and let it out to lodgers. Annie had also worked as a servant as well, as a maid servant, as a lot of girls did at that age. But she met a lodger who was living with her mother at one point, and his name was John Chapman, and he was a coachman. He was a gentleman's coachman. So again, quite high in the servant's pecking order. The coachman, again, if you can reference Downton Abbey and you remember the youngest daughter runs off with the driver. While that was obviously very frowned upon, that is again a, a position where that sort of person has intimate access to very wealthy members of a household. And eventually Annie went with her husband and lived in a country estate outside of Windsor with her husband in, in their own little coachman's cottage, which again was a, quite a nice house and they had a, quite a nice lifestyle. This is, I think, part of what I was thinking about when you consider these stories and the homeless issues that you have today, because you can fall so far and so quickly. Yeah. If she's living in this estate, she would have felt pretty confident that things were going to be okay. Yeah. That life was good. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the fact that Annie was a chronic alcoholic. Yes. She suffered from alcoholism. Her father did as well. Interestingly, by the late 19th century, they were actually, they were learning quite a lot about alcoholism as a disease. There were a number of studies published in medical journals that were linking alcoholism to something which was hereditary, which was quite new. So they were aware of this at the time. But how did people in general view alcohol or specifically women who drink a lot? Oh, well, I mean, it was deeply shameful. I mean, and, and a lot of women did drink and also took opiates and things like um, laudanum. And a lot of middle class women did, too, but they were better able to disguise this. And there was a, there was a turn of phrase in the 19th century called perfume drunk. She's a perfume drunk, which is, you know, kind of a respectable looking middle class woman who takes a tipple out of her handbag or she's always taking a little tipple or a little nip as they said and sometimes the things that she's drinking I mean alcohol was incredibly easy to get your hands on it was in all the medicines you know if you had a toothache you took a little bit of whiskey rubbed it on your gums if you had a cold you had hot whiskey and water all of these kind of crossed over into everyday life so easily that it was very accessible but the problem is, if you were a woman and you found yourself with an addiction problem, you were seen as being completely morally deficient. Being morally deficient in the 19th century was a real, it was a package deal. So it wasn't just like, well, she's an alcoholic and, you know, she's got some problems. It's, well, no, you are morally deficient, which means we can now question your sexual morality. We can question your worth as a woman. You're not a good mother. You're not normal. You are deficient. You are morally broken. So the broken woman becomes also the fallen woman. And those two sexual transgressions and moral transgressions in other ways are conflated into one thing. Several of these women in the book have 
the problem of becoming viewed as a fallen woman and not necessarily for the ways that we think where in our modern society we would say oh a fallen woman then they must be referring to prostitution right yeah but these classifications like your elizabeth who's the third woman you write about has to register for lecherous living yes which is a humiliation in itself that it becomes part of the societal culture you can not only be viewed that way you have to register yourself that way exactly i mean at the time elizabeth was living in sweden because elizabeth was born in sweden that's another thing people don't realize is that you know all the ripper victims did not all come from london in fact, you know, they came from all over. And Elizabeth Stride was from Sweden. Unfortunately, it's one of these apocryphal but very, very common tales and situations that arose in the 19th century of the servant who finds herself either willingly going into a relationship with somebody within the household or possibly not willingly coerced or, or whatever, raped and finds herself pregnant. And let's say 85%, I'm 85% sure this is what happened to Elizabeth because servants in Sweden at this time just weren't given that much latitude to actually leave the house. They were in the house all the time. So really the only people they were exposed to were other members of the household. And Elizabeth just suddenly turns up pregnant. And the problem is in Gothenburg at this time where she was living, they had just brought in this regulation, which meant that you had to register all prostitutes, okay, had to register. And there were two lists. So there were list of known prostitutes. And then there was a kind of watch list, like a secondary list of women who were fallen women. So women who lived as mistresses as other, uh, with other men, women who were seen out late at night, single women who were pregnant. All of these women were considered fallen women. And this is the thing is that this era where it's so important for women to remain chaste and the idea of sex outside of marriage is just absolutely not acceptable. Women could not have sex outside of marriage, but that didn't mean that they didn't. And the penalty that you paid sometimes was, was enormous. And so Elizabeth ended up on this list and then ended up in prostitution because once you're on this list, you, you can't get any reputable work. And um, she ended up with syphilis. And we don't know if the syphilis she contracted because it was so early on in, in the pregnancy was given to her by the man that got her pregnant or if she got it subsequently, but very well could have been the man who got her pregnant. And she turns up on the police register in Gothenburg and she is committed to the venereal disease hospital for treatment. And she has a miscarriage at seven months and she loses her child and she's never able to have children again. And it is a terribly, terribly sad story. The wonderful bit about this is she's actually rehabilitated, as they would have said back then, by a woman who was the wife of a musician who took her into the house as a servant and got her off the prostitute's register. And then she was able to immigrate to England. It's fascinating, your description too, of the venereal disease hospital that she has to go to. The workhouses, all of these different institutions that people are sent to just sound like the archetypal horror show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and to have to go to this venereal disease hospital, and it's almost more like a, I don't know, it's not a prison, but you're in lockdown, basically. Until... Yeah, it's called a lock hospital for that reason. 
in this country, in, in Britain, it, they were called lock hospitals because you were literally locked in until you were declared safe to go out again. Of course, the greatest irony was that they didn't understand syphilis and there was no cure for it. So they thought they were curing syphilis. But what it was really doing was going into its three stages of syphilis and uh, eventually goes into its latent stage. And they think it's cured. And some people don't live long enough for it to manifest in tertiary syphilis, which is like about kind of 10 to sometimes as long as 30 years later. And some people do. And that's when it comes back and you start losing your mind and all sorts of things start happening. So, um, yeah, I mean, they didn't understand how to cure it. So all of these people were subjected to these types of cures that actually amounted to nothing. Well, it's a little bit of a jump, but Another common thread that runs through a lot of these stories is infant mortality. I mean, Elizabeth miscarries, but a lot of these women have children who are born and then die. Yeah. Or they come from families where there were children who were born and then died. Yeah. And I think that from a modern day perspective, we know that people had a lot more children typically than we do now. And we also know that infant mortality rates were higher. But I found myself while I was reading it, finding that I had this assumption that meant because people lost their children more often that maybe they processed the deaths of those children differently. Like maybe it didn't mean as much or it was more common, but. Well, I, I think it would depend with the individual, but I think there's certainly something to say that people did process it differently. It didn't mean that it didn't hurt as much. I think it highly depended on the individual and the circumstances one of the most tragic things that I encountered was Annie Chapman when she was a girl, how she lost four of her siblings in three weeks to a, a scarlet fever and typhus epidemic. Can you imagine? No wonder her father ended up killing himself. I mean, how would you ever, ever get over watching four of your children die in three weeks? That's the common thread I felt running through this. It's a such a strict society of women and men need to behave in this particular way. You shouldn't get too drunk. You shouldn't do this. But there's so much grief yeah. when you look at the lives of everybody, but particularly of the poor who are struggling so much to keep things together. Do you have a sense of the role of grief in these lives? I think there, were, there would have been a lot of grief. I mean, I think there's a lot of grief and I think there's a lot of shame I think they kind of go hand in hand. I think there's a lot of self-blame. There's a lot of sense of having failed. You know, all of these women, you, you mentioned all these institutions. You know, you go into these institutions, that is a mark of failure. And with that failure comes shame that's placed on you by society. And to carry that shame, to always carry that shame and the grief associated with it, but also the grief of loss, I've often thought, you know, people in the 19th century, well, all the way through history. I mean, I think the reason why people behave the way they did and kind of perpetuated bad modes of behavior in, in that, you know, a lot of people weren't able to form effective bonds with other people, you know, and there's a lot of brutality. And I think it comes from the fact that people couldn't process this stuff. And I think it must have been incredibly difficult. I think we're quite fortunate in that we live in an age when we're able to tackle a lot of these psychological issues and talk about them and come to understand them. But there just wasn't that kind of facility back then. And so people lashed out and 
treated other people terribly and couldn't feel love for other people in some circumstances. I mean, if you look at a lot of the very broken families within the very, very poor class, it starts to make sense. The pieces come together. The parents who just have absolutely no bond for their children and feelings for their children, let them run around the streets and, and siblings who don't ever really know each other and families split up and there's no connection. And you see this in very, very poor families in the slums in the 19th century. It made me think, it made me consider what must it have been like? I mean, just, you know, awful. You just couldn't process those emotions. Yeah. Did you get any sense history has always looked more at Jack the Ripper and been sort of fascinated by him rather than the victims, partly because I think it's because it's unsolved that we never did find out who it was. And now everybody's long gone. But did you get a sense of why he would have risen up at that time? Why this would have been a thing that captured everybody's attention so heartily at that point? Well, I mean, I think it's People were aware for a while of, you know, the state of Whitechapel. You know, I mean, I think also it's really important to point out that Whitechapel wasn't the only poor part of London. And everybody seems to think, oh, Whitechapel, you know, it was, it was the worst. And if you were poor, that's where you went. That wasn't true at all. There were pockets of poverty throughout London, throughout London. Whitechapel did not have a monopoly on that. What it had was some very bad concentrations of housing and lodging. But it also had middle class people living there. You know, so I think it's important to present a fairly well-rounded picture of it. But the reason why people were aware of this depredation and degradation was because there was a lot of focus by the middle classes, by journalism. I mean, there was a kind of obsession with this because people knew this was wrong. People knew that something needed to be done. You know, there were a lot of charities and charitable institutions and things like that. But what what they really needed were social programs to help people. And so, you know, there was a lot of talk about this and there was a lot of hysteria about the poor, not unfounded, a lot of concern. And then when Jack the Ripper grew out of this, it was an extension of that that conversation, really, which is, you know, it's these living conditions, it's this lifestyle, it's what's happening with the poor people that's given rise to this, because it's like, it's like a cancer that's come out of a very, very unhealthy body. But there's also this desire to explain it away, too, to just, again, point to these women and say, well, they deserved it. Yeah. They deserved it. They were sleeping on the street. They were not people of good moral character. Yeah, this idea that, again, it's one of these things where it really fit the agenda to call them prostitutes, because obviously there's a certain sense of disregard for these women anyway. You know, here are very poor women. Nobody really cares about the poor living in lodging houses. You know, the lodging houses were for transient, the transient population. So the concept of being homeless at this time, you know, it's not only just living on the street. It's not actually having a home to go to. So people are bouncing between sleeping in doorways and if they can get a job that particular day and earn enough money to stay in a four penny lodging house, they'll do that. They'll go there and then the next day they might run out of money and they're back on the street or they might go to something called casual ward, which was like a temporary stay place in a workhouse. You either commit yourself for a long spell in the workhouse or you go for overnight in a casual ward and you have to do work to stay there. And it was absolutely awful. 
And so people bounce between these three options, and that was a picture of homelessness in the 19th century. Nobody really, really cared who these people were. So when these women are found dead and they've been, I, I say that they were homeless and they were sleeping on the street, and there is a lot of evidence to suggest that. I mean, certainly much more evidence than that they were, they were prostitutes and they were going into dark corners to have sex. I mean, first of all, there's no evidence that Jack Ripper had sex with any of the victims at all. And that came out in the inquest. There was absolutely no sign of struggle. There was no noise. And in some cases, like the case with Annie Chapman, where she was killed was a place where rough sleepers were known to sleep. And shortly after she was killed there, a man was found rough sleeping in that very same place. And all of these women had a history of rough sleeping. I mean, Catherine Eddowes as well. There were a group of women who came forward and said, that they knew her because she used to sleep rough with them in a in a shed off of Dorset Street. I mean, Catherine Eddowes has spent, she was an itinerant street seller and a ballad peddler. And, you know, she spent most of her life sleeping rough. So it's just absurd to think that they were prostitutes. There's very, very little evidence, with the exception of Mary Jane Kelly, the final victim, who we know absolutely worked in the sex trade, was a sex worker. We know Elizabeth Stride sadly went back because they're police records in 1884, but we don't know if she stayed in prostitution. She may not have been soliciting on the night she was killed, but the others, there really is no proof at all that they did. And do you find it interesting that Mary Jane, who you just mentioned, the last victim, is the one that people historically have been the most interested in, and she is the one that's the known prostitute? Yeah. I don't think that's any accident, to be honest. I think, I mean, she was also the youngest. The other four were in their 40s. She was 25. She was known to be attractive. She was very overtly sexual, obviously, by virtue of of her profession. And there is an obsession with her. I'm not surprised. It kind of goes hand in hand with the interest in the Ripper. In writing about their lives and how rich a picture of all five of these women that you give us, you barely really talk about their deaths at all. Was that a choice that you made consciously? Absolutely. I think we've had enough of the kind of harping on about the deaths. There are literally libraries of books that study in depth how these murders occurred and look at Jack the Ripper, but there is virtually nothing, there is nothing that focuses on these women's lives. And they deserve attention. You know, if, if, if you want to see, you know, if you want to see their mortuary pictures, I left the mortuary pictures out of the book. You can go online and look at the mortuary pictures. I just think there's more to a story than a story that begins with a corpse. The story doesn't begin with a corpse. The story begins with a birth, with life. After that, it's a death story. It's not a life story. Yeah. Hallie Rubenhold is a social historian who is an expert at revealing the stories of previously unknown women, just like she's done in this latest book, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. I could go on and on with you forever, but for now, I will thank you so much for joining us on the show. And thank you. And I will encourage all of you to go out and get a copy of her book. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing The Bittersweet Life on YouTube, and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory, with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. Don't forget to follow us on social media by searching for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. If you follow, you might win a copy of today's book, The Five. Thanks for joining us. Bye.